Would you stand again with me for the reading of God's Word? We're going to read the whole scripture that I'm going to be talking about today, and, uh, and then we'll probably talk about it again. But uh, my message this morning is found in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And um, let's read it. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. That is the reading of God's Word. So Father, we just thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You have come, brought us to this place this morning. We thank You for those who are here and for those who are online. And we just pray that Your Spirit would speak words of truth to us today. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. So, I'm going to try and tell a story from these verses. And uh, and not get too many sidetracks in the process. I, I I can follow rabbit trails with the best of them if, if I let myself go. But we're going to talk about Isaiah and what he saw. But a little background. We just got done a month or two ago talking about Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. And... Um, we finished that up, but I had to go back one more time because this, this, these are some of my favorite verses in, in all of Scripture. And it's talking about God's glory. Okay, so Isaiah was a prophet of God. We find his testimony in the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. Excuse me, i got to move this just slightly. Maybe that's better. And um, he was a prophet called to proclaim not good news, not good news so much as uh, woes to the kingdom of Judah, which is the southern kingdom of the divided kingdoms of, of Judah and Israel, but and specifically to the city of Jerusalem. Now we won't go there, but in Isaiah 1 and 1, it says that he served under four kings. 
And you can find those in Isaiah 1.1. One of those that's mentioned here was the King Uzziah. Um, and we got to talk about Uzziah just a little bit because it fits the context of what we see here in chapter 6. In um, 2 Chronicles chapter 26, you'll find the entire story of King Uzziah. And it says that he was a good king and a righteous king, and he followed after God. But at the end of his, close to the end of his life, pride came upon him. And he kind of said to himself, you know, I'm just as good as those priests. Why can't I go into the temple and do what those priests do? So he took it upon himself to go into the temple of God, and he was going to offer incense upon one of the altars, which was strictly forbidden by the Word of God. That was the priest's job. That was the Levite's job. It was not the job of the king, but he was going to do it anyways. So he took the censer inside the temple, and he was bringing it before the fire, and the priests, 80 priests, the chief priest and 80 other priests stood against him and said, no, don't do this, king. It is not for you to do. And he said, I'm going to do it. He had pride. He said, I can do this. Why can't I do this? Well, he did it. Well, he almost did it. He started carrying that censer full of coals to the, to the, uh, to the altar. And this white spot appears on his forehead. And then a white spot appears on his hand. And God had placed leprosy upon the king. And he looked at that, and the priest didn't have to get him out of the temple. He ran out of the temple because he saw that he had sinned, that he was in error, that he it was not his place to be entering this offering in the temple. And unfortunately, he lived with that leprosy to the rest of his reign as king. And his son, and as a leper, he went off and lived in a separate little place all by himself. He couldn't do anything with people. He couldn't be around people. So his son took over his kingship and finished out his reign until ultimately Uzziah died. And we're back to Isaiah 6. Isaiah was, um, we don't really know if he was a priest in the temple or if this vision that he saw of the Lord sitting on, on his throne was simply a vision. I have a tendency to think that it was probably a vision. And in fact, it looks a lot like Um, what John saw in Revelation 4. And uh, we won't read all of that, but in Revelation 4, 8 through 11, it says, he saw four living creatures, each with six wings, just like Isaiah saw. And they cried out day and night with no rest, crying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So a little bit different, but the primary emphasis, their primary job was crying holy before the Lord. And um, that's, that's what John saw in a vision in the book of Revelation. 
Now let's just talk about these seraphim for just a minute. They're angelic beings of some kind. We don't find them in most of the rest of the, in any place else in the rest of the, in the Word of God. They're always found around the throne of God. And if you go to the, the Hebrew word for seraph, it means the ones that burn. Now, I'm, I might have watched a few too many science fiction movies because I have no trouble picturing a being that's on fire. You know, can you picture that with me? This being with two wings to cover his eyes and two wings to cover his feet and with two he flies and he's on fire. I can picture that. Can you picture that with me? That is the seraphim that are around the glory of God. So, let's talk about glory. God's glory for just a few minutes. God's glory is overwhelming. It's totally awesome. There's just no way around it. But, God's glory is also life-threatening. <laughs> um, when he spoke to Moses, you know, it says that Moses would go into the tabernacle of meeting outside the camp, and the, the smoke or the pillar of fire would come and rest upon the, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. And Moses would go in and meet with God, but it was a presence. It wasn't face to face. And finally Moses says, God, how can I lead these people if I don't really know you, if I can't really see you face to face? <clears throat> and this is, I'm reading, or, um, reading a verses from Exodus 33, 20-22. And God tells him, he says, you can't see my face. You, you can't see me. For no man shall see me and live. But then God says, Look, there's a place here beside me in the cleft of the rock. So it, I will put you there. And it says, he says, so when my glory passes you by, you will be in that cleft and I will cover you with my hand. And you will not see my face, but you will see my back. And that's all as a human being you're going to be able to withstand. You, if you saw my face, you would die. And we see that even in the New Testament, that God's glory will not be touched by man. In Acts 12, you remember King Herod? Well, there was actually a whole bunch of different King Herods. I don't know which one this one was. But they were all kind of like, they were all puffed up. They loved, they loved pomp. They loved circumstance. They loved adulation by the people. But in Acts 12, this Herod, so on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, you can just see, you know, think about all the gold and the purple and the jewelry and the crown, sat on his throne and gave a speech to them. Okay? Don't know what he said. But the people kept shouting, Oh, it's the voice of a God and not of a man. You know, this is the people proclaiming this to this King Herod. Well, it must have went and got into his head and into his heart. Because it says, Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give that glory to God. Okay? 
And it ultimately he died of a really nasty complications. I won't. I didn't. Didn't. Uh, didn't. Didn't put that in there for you to be concerned about. But the glory of God that that Herod was trying to take away from God was too much for him. It, he couldn't handle it. It killed him. So God's glory is totally overwhelming. And we see that... Um, <clears throat> oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. So we also see, we know that we can see and find God's glory in His creation. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. So we know that in creation, God's glory is revealed. Anybody, you know, we're so privileged to live where we do because we can go outside at night. There's no light pollution, depending on where you're living. Where I live, Pequot's a little bit in the west. Breezy's a little bit way in the east. But where I live, I can go outside at night and look at the stars and behold the handiwork of God. It's glorious. I love it. Um, God gives us sunrises and sunsets. Um, and, you know, there's two kinds of people, those who love sunrises and those who love sunsets. Maybe you love both, but most people are only up for one or the other. So God's handiwork is seen in the heavens, and seen in His creation. When the trees start turning green, we get, we get the multitude of colors. You know, God must have a hundred different greens that he brings out in the spring around here. The green of the grass. Five and six greens of the different trees. And it's glorious. That's God revealing his glory in his creation. <clears throat> but he's also high above his creation in another sense. In the sense that he is higher than the world. Higher than... Well, let me just read it. Psalm 113 says, The Lord is high above all nations, His glory above the heavens. So as much as God is glorious in His creation of what we see on this earth, He is above that yet. Who is, the like, who is like the Lord our God who dwells on high, who humbles Himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and the earth? So God has to humble Himself when he looks down at his creation, because it's beneath him. His glory is so much higher than even his creation. Um, so, we can see, we get a glimpse of God's glory in what he shows us and what he reveals to us all around us. Now, I put this in here because um, I, I thought Pastor Gary might, might appreciate this as a block layer. It... And when it talks about the posts shaking in the temple, when the presence of God's glory... Okay, I just, here's just a fun fact for you. The posts of the, that the, or the, the foundation stones that the temple sits on, um, the western wall um, in Israel place where all the, the Jewish people in the whole world comes to pray, is this wall made up of closely fit stones, one on another. In fact, 
they're so closely fit that people put little tiny slips of paper in the cracks with prayers written on them, and they stay there for, they clean, let's put it this way, they clean out the prayers every six months just because they're still there. They're so they're in the in the cracks in the wall. They're, the cracks are very small. They're very tight. Well, the foundation stone for that western wall is about forty-five feet long. It's about eleven feet tall, and it's about seven feet deep. This is a hewn stone. They carved it out of uh, a quarry. And it weighs about 250 tons, or if I got my math right, about 500,000 pounds. Okay, That's one stone, and there's many more similar to it that make up the foundation of the temple area. Can you imagine that shaking? That would be unimaginable. How'd you like to lay that block? <laughs> That would be a tough one to get laid, but they did it. And, and so when it talks about the post of the temple shaking, that means the whole ground was shaking. Everything was moving. And that's, again, part of God revealing His glory. Well, there was a consequence for Isaiah to seeing that glory displayed in front of him. <clears throat> I think Isaiah looked around in this vision, what I think is a vision, looked around and saw that he was the only creature not praising God. He was just there and going, awesome, but, 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 but. He realized that he was in trouble. He was looking upon the glory of God he was seeing it, and he knew Moses, he knew the Psalms, he knew that he was a dead man, because he wasn't going to make it out of there alive looking at God. He said, woe is me. You know, here's a guy, the prophet Isaiah, he was called by God to pronounce woes upon Judah and upon Jerusalem, because he was calling the leadership out of their sin. They were following after false god. They were worshiping Asherah poles on the mountaintop. They were sacrificing their children to Chemosh, the, the god with the, the, they burned children up in. These were the leaders of Israel, and God had had enough. And he told Isaiah, go and speak woes to these people because I'm going to bring woe upon the nation of Israel, Judah for all of the sin that your leaders have been committing. And that's what Isaiah was about doing, but all of a sudden he says, Whoa, is me. He says, I am just as sinful as they are. God's glory always produces that same result. If we truly get a vision of who God is and how glorious He is, it's going to produce something in, this, in our heart that says, I'm undone. And, and, and the Hebrew for undone also means unmade. I, I'm dead. I'm, I'm done. I, you know, I can't 
my flesh and blood can't survive in the presence of God Almighty. I, 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 I need a, self, a, a Savior. I need someone to save me from God's, even from God's presence. He knew that he was unrighteous. He says, I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. He says, what hope is there for me? I have none in myself. I have no hope that I can stand here in God's presence. Um, it's interesting. Here's one of my rabbit trails. In James 3, chapter, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, um, James cautions us, warns us about the tongue. He said, he says, you know, you put a little tiny rudder on a great big ship and it steers it. And he says the tongue is just this small member of our body, but it sets our whole life on fire. And he says, if we're not careful, it sets our life on fire because of unrighteousness. And that's what Isaiah was, you know, he says, woe is me. My tongue is unrighteous. How can I speak the Word of God when I am unrighteous as much as I am? Well, thankfully, thankfully, God had an answer for Isaiah's unrighteousness. God required that Isaiah's unrighteousness, our unrighteousness, has to be dealt with. It has to be, there has to be a restitution made. There has to be a Savior to deal with that sin in our lives and in Isaiah's life. Now, in Isaiah's case, we see these seraphim, the burning ones, the ones on fire, took a live coal. Can you picture this with me? This burning being takes a live coal from the altar where it's burned, sitting there burning, and he takes it in his hand and touches it to Isaiah's lips. So, the temple, the altar, the coal. In the Old Testament scheme of things, the the altar represented the sacrifice. The sacrifice that was offered morning and evening in the temple. The lambs that were slain to cover the sins of the unrighteous. And so it was fitting that this coal, this burning being, takes his burning coal and touches it to Isaiah's lips. And then he says... Sorry, lost my place. And then he says, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. So that coal from the altar, the altar of sacrifice, sufficed in God's eyes to remove the sin from Isaiah's lips and from his life and to make him righteous. 
That was what it took for Isaiah. Um, So you might ask, what does it take for us? We'll get there. We'll get there. Okay. Our righteousness, of course, in the time frame since Jesus' death on the cross comes from His sacrifice. The sacrifice of Himself on the cross. His death paid the penalty for our sins. But His resurrection from the dead proves that He is God eternal. And based on that promise, we have righteousness to those who know Him and have taken Him for their own. Now, our righteousness, Isaiah's, let's go back to Isaiah, Isaiah's righteousness caused a response in his life. God called to kind of into the open, let's say, who will go for us? Who will speak for us? And immediately Isaiah's response was, here I am, Lord, send me. And um, <clears throat> the righteousness that has been given to us through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection should evoke that same response. In 1 Peter 4, Peter issues a call for us to be of service to God. And he says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And then I love this one, Ephesians 2 and 10 says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we too are called to a life of service. Service unto the God that has saved us. And, and it's in Scripture that says, God desires that we serve Him. In fact, He created works for us to do before the foundations of the earth were done being put in place. He made us to be His servant. He made us to be called holy before Him, to do works for Him. And, and, and lest I've confused somebody, our righteousness does not come from our works. Our righteousness only comes from Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. But because of that righteousness that Jesus has given to us, we are called to do good works in this life. So, what should our response be to a story like this of Isaiah? What can we learn? What have we learned from Isaiah? 
in just these few short verses in Isaiah 6. Well, Isaiah saw his God's glory. And we need and can and should seek after God's glory in our own lives. Psalm 105 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Sing to Him. Sing praises to Him. Tell of all His wondrous works. Glory in His holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. So because Jesus has given us His righteousness, we can go before God and seek after His glory. We aren't going to die. We can seek after God's glory and live and do the works that He has called us to. Now, to get to that place, we have to acknowledge our sin. I only took one verse from the Romans road, but it's, it's an important one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all start out life as sinners. And we need, in Isaiah's case, that seraphim put a coal to his lips. In our case, the answer is Jesus. Jesus died that we might have life and life eternally. And that we might be made righteous the way He was righteous. So, um, in Psalm 79, it says, Help us, O God, of our salvation, for the glory of Your name, and save us and forgive our sins for the sake of Your name. And God did that. He did that through Jesus. Psalm 100 is pretty familiar to most of us. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. So again, the righteousness that Jesus has brought to us should cause us to want to live a life serving Him. <clears throat> and then 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the works of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So, in our lives, much as we saw in Isaiah's, Isaiah didn't, wasn't necessarily seeking it. This was his call. God's calling him to become a prophet to the, to the nations. But God wants us to seek after His glory. He wants us to be seeking after Him and finding Him. And when we find Him, we will see that glory even greater and greater. Now, to seek after that glory means we need to stand in righteousness. And that righteousness comes from Jesus Christ who died to save us from sin and to impart His righteousness to us. Once we've made that step and taken that step of knowing, coming to know Jesus and asking Him to take control of our lives, then we can truly seek God's glory. If we're, if we're trying just to see in the natural, to the natural man, if we're trying to seek God's glory, we're playing with fire. <laughs> we, we may not be able to stand before that glory. 
So once God has given that righteousness and we see the glory of God in our lives, we see the glory of God in creation, we see the glory of God in the people around us, then God calls us to serve Him and to be serve Him out of Jesus' righteousness, serve Him out of God's glory, but serve Him in all the works that He has called us to do. Because He is a working God. He, he is working in people's lives in so many ways, in so many hearts, in so many things. Physical, spiritual, natural, financial, ec- um, health. God wants us involved in touch with those around us and serving Him in meeting needs of these people. So, as we go out from here today, plow somebody's sidewalk. (laughs) Call somebody up and make sure they're safe and have food in their house in the midst of a snowstorm. Call somebody up just to say hi and see how they're doing. If you're going to the grocery store on the way home, make sure you speak a good word to the cashier, to the people that you meet in the aisles. Proclaim the goodness of God, the glory of God, to all that we meet. And then we will be doing and serving God in His righteousness. Amen.